Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, everyone. Um, I hope that you enjoyed last week our episode about spies. I was lucky enough to interview the wonderful Nadine Ackerman this week, and she was telling me all about her new book, Invisible Agents, Women and Espionage in 17th Century Britain, which is basically all about female spies. So before we hear that, Sam and I would like to just introduce the topic of female spies. And you've been doing a little bit of reading about this, haven't you, Sam, this week? I have. It's all about heads, disappearance, eroticism, wrongful execution and scapegoats. Is it? (laughs) Goodness me. Yeah. Goodness me. Yeah, and secret art. Ooh. Which I'm quite liking because I don't. You, you write about spies, don't you? I do. I write about female spies, yeah. and in particular, women who are involved in spy networks. Uh, you can catch this in all good uh, Daybell publications. <laughs> <laughs> so I did a bit of um, reading around Matahari. Course. Um, who was a well-known spy who was executed during the First World War. Well, whether she was a spy or not is now pretty much open to debate. Born 1876, died in 1917, executed in France, executed by the French for supposedly helping the Germans. She's an absolutely fascinating figure. And she has this career where she's does quite a lot of circus and then it becomes something of a courtesan, an erotic dancer, a variety of things. And then she ends up being sort of pigeonholed or labelled as a spy. So her career changes. It reaches its zenith as a, as a sort of well-known courtesan around about 1915. And then the war comes along um, and she doesn't have the income, but she's very, very, very well connected. And the argument goes that she's given the opportunity to spy for the French to find out something about what, what, whatever she can find out about German aeroplanes. And she's specifically um, ordered to target the Crown Prince, Wilhelm's son, who actually doesn't know anything at all. But what happens is that she gets ensnared in this network of spies working between uh, France Germany, Russia and England and she appears to get trapped. Now what's fascinating about it is how that happens but also the way that her her life and her death are then retold by historians and she becomes almost like the the perfect example of the femme fatale someone who will um, seduce you 
steal all your secrets and will will appear um, this sort of wonderful, flamboyant, attractive, gregarious person, but is there with a much more sinister agenda. Like a beautiful James Bond baddie. Exactly, exactly. Um, Now, looking through, there are so many different ways you can look at this extraordinary career. So she was executed by firing a squad of 12 French soldiers just before dawn on the 15th of October 1917. She was just 41. She refused. She wasn't bound. She refused a blindfold. Now, her body wasn't claimed by any family members and was used for medical study. Her head was embalmed and kept in the Museum of Anatomy in Paris. But then in 2000, um, so, you know, nearly 100 years later, archivists discovered that her head had disappeared. So someone out there... From the museum? Someone out there has got Matahari's head. Ooh. Yeah, that's a pretty... pretty So it wasn't out on display. It was just... relic, isn't it? It was in in the archives and somebody went in and pilfered it. Now, there are some some people here who who say that they needed... The French needed a scapegoat. They needed to explain how secrets had been leaving France... Um, what a, um, to try and put some kind of handle on a flood of intelligence which had been leaving France, and they 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 chose her to be the scapegoat. There wasn't actually very much evidence. There's some suggestion that she was found with secret ink, which she claimed was part of her makeup, which I right. think is quite interesting. Mm. A a a female explanation, which perhaps she used, knowing that the male interrogators wouldn't know the truth of it. I write in lipstick. Yeah, I write in... Anyway, they've got some... Um, the interrogation notes, which are at the National Archives, the transcript of the interrogation, have recently been released. And they're fascinating, because you can hear her voice. You can actually hear this moment when she's being... Um, oh, they've actually got the recordings of... Not the recordings, no. I mean, but you, by, by reading okay, it out, you can okay. you get the sense of her yeah. of the way she speaks and, and her language. So she's been picked up by coming um, in on a boat, and the English have got hold of her. Did you ever go to Liverpool since the beginning of the war? No, never, she replies. Well, it's a most interesting case of identity because a lady of your name did go to Liverpool and was seen by this officer. And you are not the lady. That is interesting, she replies. I have no family, so that's funny. I'm quite alone. Then the interrogator. First of all, you came with Zell's passport. That's her name. This is her actual name. Now, we have a Clara Benedict who met you in the train, and then we have another Mademoiselle who was seen at Liverpool by this officer. She replies, I do not understand, I do not understand. Then she goes into an explanation. She says, I've had the same trouble in Paris, not so gravely, but in Paris they asked me if I ever went to Antwerp. I was never there. The same captain, I gave you his name, said it was a Dutch woman. She was always called MacLeod. And one day in the Grand Hotel in Paris, I received a love letter from somebody from Mrs MacLeod in English. It was not for me. I went to the manager of the hotel and he said, that is the Grand Hotel in London. The interrogator replies, then there is another lady going under your name. Matahari replies, yes, it must be. I'd be happy to see her. And there's then another exchange about her passport, which I really enjoyed. Matahari says, my real name is Margareta Zella MacLeod. I married MacLeod and was afterwards divorced from him. Where were you born? In Frisia. This is not your photograph. He's obviously pointing to her passport. No, it is not my photograph. I put it to you that your real image, your real name is Clara Benedicts. She says, I swear that's not. It's a mistake. I put it to you that that passport is a false passport in which somebody has written the upper part. No, 
Just to show you are not speaking the truth, there is writing under the photograph. Send it over to Holland and you'll see that it is right. Are you ready to account for the fact that the real does not, that the seal, sorry, are you ready to account for the fact that the seal does not meet? I did nothing with my passport, sir. So this carries on for pages and pages and there's obviously some significant movement going around, some strategic yeah. gamesmanship is going on. There's a fake passport, which the English don't accept as being her real passport. There are three or four different names. There are people claiming that they were her in Paris and elsewhere in Antwerp and elsewhere in London. And it's taking historians years to underpick what's going on here. And I think the most convincing argument is that is that she was a scapegoat. She was badly, she was well connected. She had a little too much power. I think that the um, French wanted to use her as an intelligence officer, but then it was twisted when she went to Germany and somebody offered her money in Germany and then they worked a like a sting to make it seem that Matahari was actually spying for the other side. I reckon it was a very mm. clever twist. Mm-hmm. And so the French ended up executing someone who could have been their own spy. Yeah. I mean, it's really interesting thinking about how we recover female spies throughout history because to be a professional spy you need to have been paid so one of the ways in which you can uncover that is go and look at the mm-hmm. the payment of, of female spies there's a lot of recent work being done on female spies during World War Two but also I think what's really crucial is reconceptualizing what constitutes spying so it doesn't necessarily have to be this formal activity that somebody has trained up to be a spy. But women throughout history have informally spied. I mean, just for the 16th century, you think about the, the women who were spying on Anne Boleyn. A lot of the evidence that is used to um, basically <laughs> execute Anne Boleyn uh, is women who have access to her, who've been spying on her movements. If you look at another figure like Mary, Queen of Scots, the circles of women who are in her household are pretty key to getting information in and out. And I think this is one of the things that Nadine Ackerman does in her new book. And so I hope you all enjoy this interview uh, with Nadine Ackerman from Leiden University. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Histories of the Unexpected and a very special episode for you. We are very fortunate. In fact, we are very lucky to have the wonderful Nadine Ackerman from Leiden University talking to us today. Um, Nadine is a reader in early modern English literature at Leiden. And for the last year or so, she's been a fellow at All Souls College, Oxford, where she's been working on a biography of Elizabeth of Bohemia. Her research in many ways is a gift for histories of the unexpected. She has discovered a postmaster's trunk from the 17th century stuffed full of unopened letters, is involved in a wonderful project on letter locking, um, and is also working on uh, an underground archaeology project. She goes by the Twitter handle at Miss Walsingham. Um, Who better to talk to us about 
the history of spies. So, Nadine, welcome to Histories of the Unexpected. We are delighted to have you. Thank you so much, James, for having me. Well, it seems like it's been an incredibly busy year for you this year. Um, you've just written this fantastic new book called Invisible Agents, Women and Espionage in 17th Century Britain, uh, which was published this year by Oxford University Press? No, yes, well, in, in July, so, so already some, some months ago, uh, last year. And um, it, it has, it, for me, it was unexpected that it, it was so popular, or it, it continues to be so popular. Yes, I mean, it, it seems like you've been absolutely everywhere with it. So, I mean, tell us a little bit about this book. You know, it's titled Invisible Agents. Uh, what, what's, what's, what's invisible about it? Well, before my book, uh, they were not really known. We only had a handful of examples, um, such as the pay, playwright Afra Bain or uh, Elizabeth yep. Murray of The Sealed Knots. Those were the kind of only yep. women connected to the trade of espionage in this period. And they were always seen as kind of unique examples. But when I stumbled upon another one in the archives, um, and she was quite a big one, I thought, what else have we missed? And it took me about five years uh, going through archives and libraries and private collections, and I found about a collection of 60 of them, and uh, 10 of whom I describe in quite detail in the book, but the yep. others are, are referred to. So there, there's this kind of whole hidden world, and the world of espionage is hidden in itself, of course, uh, but the yes. women seem to have been, in a way, more successful spies because they have been hidden so long. Yes, so, so you've discovered 60, 17th century female spies in the archives. Yes, British ladies, so English and Scottish ones. Uh, right. Not enough right. Irish ones, I'm afraid, but still English and Scottish ones. Brilliant. Well, it, say, it says in your, in your book, and I want to just give a quote here, it was largely the invisibility of women, social, financial, sexual and familial, that allowed them to be as effective as they were. And can you tell us a little more about why women were such effective spies in this in this period, in the 17th century? Yeah, so the 17th century is almost 400 years ago, uh, so obviously. So, but, but at the time, women were thought of to be kind of inferior creatures, physically incapable of having any political thoughts. Um, so nobody suspected them of plotting. They could just go um, doing their business and nobody would pay attention to them. Their letters, for instance, were, weren't opened if, if someone recognised it to be a female hand. Um, then they sort of left a le letter untouched because they thought it would be full of domestic gossip and certainly not full of politics. Yes, I remember, I remember being at a colloquium with Jermaine Greer where she pulled me aside and I was writing my book on Tudor women letter writers at the time and she said, she said, do you know the thing about the 17th century is that exactly that, that, women, that the families would send letters with written in women's, addressed in women's hands so that they weren't opened. Have you come across much of that? Well, I've certainly come across uh, one spy whom I still haven't been able to identify. And he could have been a, a man or a woman, but I think it, it was probably a man using a woman's hand. And he certainly yeah. uses several code names that are female, uh, but that, could, yes. of course, could still be that, that a, a woman is using other women's names. But I think it's a man who knows that women are really unsuspected in this period. Yes. 
So, so the, yeah, you yep, see them on. also also dressing up as women if they are kind of imp- if men are imprisoned in the Tower of London, they dress up as yes. women and and they just tiptoe out of the prison. Right. So this this is men dressed in disguise disguised as women. Yes. Uh, for instance, George <laughs> Booth of the Booth Rebellion, uh, he disguises yes. himself as a woman, as does the Duke of York when he's about 13 or 14 years old. They dress him up as a woman and he just walks straight out of St. James's Palace, I believe. Um, and nobody really pays any attention to him. Excellent. This, uh, this sounds like Wind in the Willows as well, where Toad escapes dressed as a washerwoman. Yes. The history is far more interesting than any fiction isn't it? <laughs> yes, yes, yes. So so the book is based on, on seven main chapters and you've got five that are based on women. So Susan Hyde, uh, Elizabeth Murray, Elizabeth Carey, Anne Halkett, Afra Ben. And then there are two fascinating chapters um, around Charles I's prison correspondence uh, and also about um, Secretary Thurlow. Um, I wonder if you could if you could tell us a little bit about, about the, the chapters on Charles the first and how women were how women were involved there. Yes, Charles of course gets imprisoned in in 1646 until the right up to his execution in 1649, and you basically yeah. see that the kind of male councillors have fled to the continent. Um, the, the generals are on the battlefield, and the women start taking the initiative to communicate secretly with Charles. So we see a couple of women working in a kind of little network together, writing letters in code to Charles I to inform him what's going on and also try to persuade him to perhaps um, conclude an alliance with the Scots, which he he refuses to do. Um, So so they are in communication with him and inform him. And other kind of men are are warning Charles, saying that he shouldn't trust women and that women have no stomach for such strong liquor, which can mean women cannot really keep secrets or they are not really up to be involved in such dangerous undertakings. But he seems to ignore his male counsellors and he just uh, responds to all these women's letters. And, and are, are they also carry, are they also part of the sort of the, the communication networks in carrying correspondence as well? Yes, so I have not only looked at what we would now see as proper spies, but also the women who carried messages from A to B. And Charles yes. I used laundry women, for example. Uh, he's also, right. also quite keen to use uh, as a messenger a woman who could not read because thereby she could not betray their correspondence. Yes. Uh, she could not yes. actually, because the problem with messengers, of course, is can you trust your messenger? And if you have a yes. messenger who cannot read, then he, she or he becomes more trustworthy. Yes. So, of course, the, 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 I suppose it's, again, this sort of theme of invisibility here that, you know, you wouldn't, you wouldn't accuse a woman who was a, a laundress, so a washerwoman. Yes. Or you wouldn't even think that she would be involved in carrying things in and out of, of, of prison. No, you can just imagine that how easy it would have been for, for her to put a letter amongst the, the many sheets that would go in and out yes. of the castle. Um, so yes. it's, it's a perfect uh, cover for, for women to sort of operate as a kind of secret messenger in this period. Having yes. said that, one of the other women involved in, in this network um, was Jane Warwood. 
and she is right. the kind of daughter of, of a gentleman of the bedchamber. So, so not in the, in the in the upper regions, but certainly also not in the lower regions. And she just walks in and out of Charles I's prison cell because it's understood by his guards that she is his mistress. But they just assume that she is there just to have sexual relationships with the king and they don't right. expect her of carrying out secret messages. Gosh, so that, that's another way in which they can sort of slip in and out of of the prison carrying carrying materials. Um, one of the things that I think is really fascinating about your your work, not just this book, but your your work more broadly, is your the work that you've done on cryptography. And we get quite a lot of that in this book. And one of the things that I'm fascinated by, uh, and I've written on cryptography myself, but is the the ingenious devices that people used in order to you know communicate secretly. Yes, yes. As you know, even in the kind of 16th century and um, or perhaps even earlier, a lot of people were writing in, in cipher code. Um, perhaps yeah. not to, to hide something in, in particular, but to sort of uh, communicate with friends, to, to start kind of mini uh, networks. Um, I think I've done this in primary school myself, that I invented a kind of secret yes. language uh, to yes. communicate with my friends, yeah. not because I had major secrets but just it creates a little kind of group um, it, it's during the civil wars so around 1642 that parliament decides that anyone writing in cipher um, will be accused of treason at that point you could be hanged if, if you would sort of still continue to write in cipher and for me, that was uh, quite a useful act of parliament because I could go through bundles of letters uh, dated 1642 until 1645 um, and to sort of see whether people were actually taking a huge risk by writing in cipher code. And thereby I found a lot of women uh, using cipher code and I could sort of follow their, their names in the archives to see what, the, what they were involved in. Uh, it's only in the, in yes. the second uh, civil war, so in the, in the kind of 1650s, that they understand that there are better ways of communicating secretly. Because with cipher code, of course, it, it stares back at you from the very page. You see the symbols, you see uh, the numbers. But if, if you, for instance, write with invisible ink, it's not immediately plain to an interceptor that someone is, is trying to hide something. No, and there are also other sort of ingenious um, techniques that people used, aren't there? Not, not just invisible ink, but um, we've talked about this in the past on Histories of the Unexpected. But I think actually talking about your work, the work that you've done on, on, on eggs. Yes. Yeah, eggs are, are, are marvellous. Um, there's a kind of 16th century um, book of secrets by Porter, and he, he sort of writes this out, how to do it. You have to pop an egg into vinegar for several hours, just an unboiled one, and, and the shell gets soft. And then you can use a little razor to make a little slit between the kind of membrane and the shell, and you can put your secret message in there. And then you pop the egg into water, and the shell gets hard, to get hard again. 
Um, so you can just easily imagine just one of those eggs among a ba basket of eggs and nobody would be any, any the wiser. No, and this is actually something that you've recreated, isn't it? On your, on your, your you've got a, a YouTube channel. Yes, on, on secrets and spies, the kind of secret yes. writing techniques. And that's, that's yes. very much a collaborative um, endeavour with, with uh, Jane and Brocio from MIT. Um, but we, we sort of have fun trying these things out because when you read it, you sort of think that cannot be done. When you sort of think yeah. you cannot really put a secret message into an un unboiled egg without having it come out completely soaked or breaking the egg. Uh, but it turns out that it can be done. So that is, it's, yeah. it's marvelous to, to try these things out. Yes. One of the things that has always struck me about your research is the, that you're, in some ways, you're a bit of a spy yourself. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. You're a bit of a sleuth in the archives. And, you know, just talking to you over the years, I am just have always been so impressed by the kinds of archives that you get access to. I mean, it's not just the state papers that you're going through, but, you know, there are archives that um, other people haven't looked at. I wonder if you can tell us a little bit about your, your, your travels through uh, the archives of Europe for this project. Yes. Um, well, you basically need to get into every archive that you can possibly can, because especially where other people ha haven't been before, because who knows what you will find. Um, there, there, for instance, there are libraries in, in, in Berlin uh, and Munich uh, that have huge English collections. And it, it's just that a lot of kind of English scholars, uh, Anglophone scholars don't go there because it's not as familiar a place to go as, for instance, yeah. the National Archives or, or the British Library. Um, but it, they also have kind of state papers. And pri yeah. private collections are certainly the best. Sam and I are always really interested in in histories of the unexpected is the kinds of source materials that you that historians use to recreate uh, a history. So if you were to 
to, and you've already started talking about this, but if you if people wanted to find out about female spies from the 17th century, where would they start looking? What what kinds of source materials have you? Where do these letters crop up? Yes, well, the, the most wonderful thing about it is that there is so much material. I think that I've, I've only scratched the surface with my book. Um, for instance, what I didn't realize at the time when I started myself, there's such a thing as the very modern-sounding secret service account books in the National Archives, um, where yes. just the names of, sp of spies are written down. And the kind of funny thing is that um, John Thurlow becomes kind of Oliver Cromwell's most memorable spy master, but his predecessors um, have women down as intelligences. Um, the kind right. of women who, who work with secret information. But when John Thurler comes to power, um, you, you sort of see that he sort of hides the women in these records as nurses. He crosses out the word intelligencer and from that moment onwards has, has them in the records as nurses. Um, so you have the secret account books. But you also have um, entire archives of the spy master John Thurlow himself in the Bodleian, um, the Rawlison papers, 72 volumes um, of material. 72 volumes. 72. I, I've sort of playing with this idea lately that I should perhaps write a kind of biography of that archive, uh, that kind of spy yes. master's archive. There's so much material that still is untapped. Um, and the thing, what happened with the women's letters is that they were not catalogued amongst those papers because they were sort of assumed to be um, domestic papers rather than state papers. Right, right. And Thurlow himself uses female spies, doesn't he? Female intelligences. I mean, this is something that you talk about in your chapter on him. And there are several several case studies that you look at there. Yes. Um, th th there's something paradoxical about it, because on the one hand, both sides of this kind of conflict, the civil wars, the royalists and the parliamentarians, or the cavaliers and the roundheads, uh, depending on how you look at them, um, they don't believe that women can be involved in espionage, and yet both sides use them. Um, so that's also something very funny going on uh, there. I think Thurlow is more reluctant to use them, but he uses them nevertheless. Um, and... He, for instance, uses a, a woman who's involved in uh, writing news pamphlets um, and, right. and she later becomes uh, to work a, a, as a spy for him. There are other women who just offer themselves to him and he, he seems very... Um, he's not immediately willing to trust them but seems to be using them nevertheless. Moving on from, from, from the book... Uh, if we can, just for a minute, we can come back to it in a in a little bit. But one of the thing, one of the projects that you've been involved in that I've been I've followed from afar with an enormous amount of interest is the 17th century postmaster's trunk that you came across. Yeah, that project is called Signed, Sealed, and Undelivered um, because I, I stumbled upon this um, trunk full of letters, actually because a, a colleague just approached me when I was giving a paper in New York, and she said to me, and this was Rebecca Irons, and she said to me, well, you're, you're Dutch and you work on correspondence, so you must know of the postmaster's chest that is standing in The Hague full of these closed letters. And I just couldn't believe her. Um, so I immediately 
called the curator of that museum and I, I, I looked at the chest and there was standing in front of me um, because over the years I've been in so many archives uh, to, yeah. to find letters uh, for the Spice Project but also for Elizabeth of Bohemia and I hadn't really come across, uh, come across closed letters I've seen no. perhaps millions of open letters, but never was the one that was closed. And suddenly to have a trunk full of them was just incredible. And it turned out that this chest belonged to uh, a, the postmaster of The Hague and his wife. And they were um, keeping all the letters that they couldn't deliver for some reason. And there are several reasons. Sometimes the, the address is simply not legible. Uh, sometimes yeah, yeah. someone moved house uh, or, or someone died or there are all kinds of reasons or a, quite a common reason is is that the letter was refused because in this period the, the recipient has to pay for the letter, the addressee. So if right. you sort of recognize the, the, the handwriting of your very angry father, you don't want to have any contact with anyway. And you don't want to pay for the letter. Yes, yes. So yes. What, what we also quite often see, which I think is very funny or, or, or sad, I guess it's more sad than funny, is we have a lot of women's letters and those letters are, for instance, writing to a man saying, I'm carrying your baby or could you please give me some money? Right. Uh, and obviously, the, these men don't want any to do anything to do with these women. So, so they recognise the hand of uh, of uh, a woman who they've had a, some kind of relationship with, and then do not want to have any contact because they're assuming that you know they don't want any demands to be made on them. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, probably that th these men were married or, or just don't yes. want to have a, a child w with a woman who was perhaps from a lower class. Um, so so it, it, it's a trunk full of full of painful stories as well. Oh gosh. So how how do you read them if they're if they're unopened? And I know I know that you've been developing as part of the team, they've been you've been developing sort of ingenious technologies to read the letters um in their unopened state so that the so that the kind of integrity of the letter can be, you know, preserved. Yes, and, and we're still developing that technology. But it's yeah, we're scanning letters and um, using uh, microtomography as a kind of scanning technique to pick up on the kind of iron parts that are part of 17th century ink. Right, of iron, iron gall ink. Yes, iron gall ink. So yes. that's why, why yes. a scanner can pick up on the writing. And um, yeah. we're, we're still in the development of, of this technique, but we, we think it can be done. And... Um, because it's such a unique thing to also have a close letter, we are very reluctant to, to open them. There are also still yes. letters in the trunk that are um, folded in their 17th century manner, but the steel has been broken. So that's quite unique as right. well. Like, because normally in an right. archive, you see a, a letter as a kind of flat object. Whereas here you yes. can sort of see them as, as functioning as really three-dimensional objects. And that kind of form, that materiality is communicating all kinds of things, which yes. we're also still trying to figure out. Is it, for instance, um, the case that a merchant would always fold his or her letter in, in a similar way? Um, or, or 
are, are all different techniques used throughout all different kind of what we would now see as professions. So we have we don't have any clear answers yet, but it seems to be worth investigating. And it's a and it's and it's a fascinating project to to sort of follow. Um, if people want, if people were interested in 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 finding out more about this, where would they go, Nadine? Definitely follow letterlocking.org. Uh, the kind okay. of let's locking website, but also just signed, sealed, and undelivered has its own website, or just my Twitter Great. handle at, at Miss Walsingham, um, and you Excellent. will find out uh, anything about this project, signed, sealed, and undelivered. Because one of the things that I find really interesting about this is that it is this fusion of manuscript studies and, you know, really sort of high end science. And in fact, if you think about how if you think about how a letter works today, you know we're used to sort of having a sheet of paper that is folded and then put in an envelope. But in the 16th and 17th century, this was not the case. Envelopes weren't invented, and so letters were folded in intricate ways and then sealed. And what's striking about this technology that you're using is that in order to scan the inside of the letters that are folded in order to put the words back together in the right order, once you've got all these sort of tons of pictures of them, you need to actually understand the mechanics of how each individual letter was locked, don't you? Yes, and, and there are so many ways of, of, of locking your letter, it seems. So, and, and everyone seemed to have a, a special kind of technique. Um, some letters are quite easy to break into, and especially if you think about spying, um, you want to have a more kind of intricate manner of folding your letters. So the sheet you're writing on becomes its own sending device, but once it's folded, uh, becomes its own little envelope. And yeah. the more intricate it, it has been folded, the, the higher security a letter has. Yeah, because, there, because if you look at it from the, um, from the perspective of the, the person who is the, who's the cryptographer who is trying to crack letters and open them, there are all sorts of ingenious techniques of opening letters and then resealing them, aren't there? Um, and so if you've got a much more, if you've got a highly elaborate way of sealing something and putting something across, um, it's, you're much more likely to discover whether somebody's been opening your letters, aren't you? Oh, yes, absolutely. Um, just pretend that we want to communicate secretly with each other. We could sort of agree yes. beforehand that we will use a certain um, diamond shape uh, which in the inside ha has an extra um, triangle as well. That That's something we can sort of agree on beforehand and it will be very difficult to reconstruct. Just imagine um, in, in a kind of post, what we would now see as a post office, hundreds of letters would come in. And just imagine that you have to sort of uh, unfold a hundred origami birds and fold them back in a similar manner again within hours without being sort of no seen or that that you are actually doing that. That's next to impossible. So it seems yes. so easy to unfold a letter, but just think of them as a thousand origami birds and it becomes all the more difficult. Goodness me. That, 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 sounds, that sounds incredibly difficult. Now, um, it struck me that part the what what's at the root of your interest in female spies is the work that you did on Elizabeth of Bohemia 
and you've edited three volumes for Oxford University Press of Elizabeth of Bohemia's correspondence with I think the third volume coming out in November if I'm if yeah, I'm correct. So probably a bit later these things always take longer than than you okay. sort of um, um, plan them for but it's it's I'm very close to finishing that one as well yes excellent but but do you, but this this has been the sort of this has been the sort of um, I suppose the archival work at the sort of at the sort of rock face um, that has underpinned a lot of your later work, isn't it? Oh, yes, absolutely. I think I, I could never have written Invisible Agents without first training myself as a spy for about 15 years by working on the letters yes. of Elizabeth Stewart. Yes. <laughs> and you're writing a biography of her at the moment. Yes, I, I'm finishing uh, uh, this month. Uh, the first draft of that biography will be finished. And it, it has been such a long journey, but she's such a fascinating figure. Um, and she has st such a strong voice as an all early modern woman um, that I'm, yes. I'm, I'm continuing to... Can you give us a potted, a potted history of her? She was born in Scotland in 1596 as, as the daughter of uh, King James VI. Uh, then she moved to England when her father became James I of England in 1603. In 1613, she married Frederick V, the elector Palatine, a German prince. Um, now, the, the English always think that she married far beneath her stature, but the elector Palatine was the mightiest prince of the Holy Roman Empire, uh, which for all practical purposes is most of Western Europe. So she certainly didn't marry beneath her stature. I think that's a kind of um, a, a British myth, uh, not, not fully mm. recognizing the other. Um, he ruled quite happily over the Palatinate, which is uh, Heidelberg uh, and Amberg in, in uh, Germany, for about five years. And then he accepted a crown of Bohemia and they moved to Prague. And she was crowned Queen of Bohemia in November 1619 in the winter. And um, uh, that was a disastrous decision because um, the kind of Catholic armies that were sort of fighting for the emperor drove them out within a year. So the next winter they had to flee. And that's why they became known as the winter king and winter queen. Um, so they ruled from one winter to the next winter. And they had to flee and they uh, fled to the Dutch Republic where uh, Frederick had male kin, um, the, the Prince of Orange were, were half-brothers of, of his mother. Um, so they, they stayed in the Dutch Republic, and she becomes a very young widow. He, he dies um, probably um, from, from some kind of illness. We don't know exactly what, but he dies in 1632, and she becomes a young widow and tries to get all the lands back for her children, um, and she is not really successful in that. It just, her son regains them in 1648. But that's also because she doesn't want to make a compromise. Um, she just wants all or nothing. Um, and yet she's very successful in, in, in another respect, in that she manages to influence ambassadors. She always wants exactly the opposite of what her brother, King Charles I, wants. Um, so she works in opposition uh, to her brother, the king. 
And, and she dies quite, quite late in uh, 1662. She has 13 children, 11 um, will live to adulthood and become all these wonderful figures that a lot of people will know, like Rupert of the Rhine, uh, Morris, who both fought in the Civil War, but also a daughter, Louise Hollandine, who was a painter, uh, one of the first female painters of the century. She also has another daughter who's a philosopher uh, with whom she often gets confused because she has the same name. Um, she is also called Elizabeth. And what is most important that our or your current uh, queen is, is related to her. Um, it's her grandson, George, who in 1714 becomes king. Um, and so the line of, of, of succession uh, derives from that moment. Well, she's an absolutely fascinating character who, who's very long lived, incredibly well networked. And you've, you've edited several thousand of her letters, haven't you? Yes, um, and that's why I've done so much archival work, because her archive doesn't su survive. So I found her letters in other people's archives. So I've, I've right. been to about uh, on nearly 50 locations in Europe, but Goodness also me. the United States, uh, just going through people's archives. And I find the originals... Uh, in, in their archives and often people have kept copies of the letters they send out to her so I have right. a, a correspondence in both directions uh, which is kind of, kind of unique in itself as well um, and she writes in different languages in French, Italian uh, she receives letters in Latin uh, in English and in cipher code she uses about seven different cipher keys um, and I've, I've managed to crack six, six and a half. There's still a bit that six I can't decode. <laughs> right. This is, a, this is a sort of scholarly jigsaw puzzle uh, combined with a, a sort of cryptic co crossword you've been working on for the last 20 years then. Yes, absolutely. And, and it has been a, a quite a fabulous journey. Well, I look, for, I look forward to when... I look forward not only to when Volume 3 uh, comes out, but also to when your biography uh, of Elizabeth of Bohemia comes out as well. Yes, that, hopefully that won't be too long. Um, good, good. Yes, yes. Excellent. Well, Nadine, thank you very much for being our very special guest on Histories of the Unexpected. And everyone, you should follow Nadine on Twitter at Miss Walsingham. So, Nadine, thank you. Thank you. Lovely talking to you, James. Thanks for listening, everyone. Um, do make sure you follow us on social media. I'm at Dr. Sam Willis. And we are at Unexpected Pod. And I am at James Daybell. James and I are trying to do something very uh, difficult here and quite challenging. We're trying to change the way you all think about the past to show that everything has a history, even the most unexpected of subjects. Did you know there was a history of puddles and slime, James? I, I did. Yes. <laughs> yes, I did. Yes, I did. Of course. Anyway, we would really appreciate your help. You can find us at patreon.com forward slash histories of the unexpected and also at histories of the unexpected.com. Check us out on Instagram as well and Facebook. That would be good. Um, but the support network would be great. Anything you could do will help us pay for microphones. It will help us pay for studios. It will help us pay for editing and it will allow us to keep the mics on to keep this podcast going. James and I love doing it and it would really help us if you could if you could keep it going for us thanks guys thanks Bye -bye. for listening
Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.